a summary uh, from Open Doors 2020 World Watch List of Christian Persecution. And it, uh, again, this is just a summary. It paints a, a very sobering picture. Every day, every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day. Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked every week. Every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly for their faith every month. Remember, I know those are just numbers, and they just kind of have a way of numbers, just have a way of rolling over us. Please keep in mind that when I said that 8 and that 182 and that 309, every one of those numbers has a face. Those are our lives that we're we're speaking of here. This world does not greet the gospel. And and many of us can say that we we know something of of that just just personally in, in our own experience. Think with me, just just the experiences that you've had of times where you were passed by. You know, maybe it was at school, maybe it was at work, in some social sphere, you were were passed by because of some stance that you knew that you simply, you had to take. As a consequence of that, uh, relationships were put under stress. Uh, Doors were closed, opportunities denied, uh, rewards that were justly yours denied, perhaps even, frankly, when you just say rights, rights that were yours were taken away. No few of us, at least at some level, can speak of some experience in this, in this realm of just being able to know and acknowledge and nod in agreement when I say this world does not greet the gospel. Well, how do we respond to that? What do we do with that? Now, okay, as a minister of the gospel, you know I'm going to say, well, pray. Okay, that's kind of a stock answer, right? Here's what's not. Here's what may surprise you. How we're to pray how we are to pray in the face of oppression, injustice, affliction, meted out to us because we are identified with Jesus. How we should pray is a whole lot different than we may realize. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Psalm 129. Psalm 129, we're moving back into this series through what are referred to as the the Songs of Ascent. Uh, This is a a section here um, uh, in this this part of the Psalms, uh, 15 of them, 120 through 134. Uh, We we, we don't know exactly all the history as to how this compilation came to be put together, but we do know, we do know that the pilgrims, the Israelites, for centuries as they would move together as a body from different towns and villages and such, north, south, east, and west, to Jerusalem for the annual festivals, um, for the pilgrimages, they would sing these songs together, together. 
the songs of ascent. To go to Jerusalem, you have to go up. Yeah, it's an ascent, just, just, from a, uh, just when you look at the map and the elevation. So the songs of ascent. And we are now in Psalm 129, which is getting at the, the answer to the question that we're putting here at the house, before the house this morning. So in the face of oppression, in the face of injustice, in the face of affliction and persecution that we is meted out upon us because we are identified in some way with the name of Jesus, how should we respond? Prayer, but how should we pray? How should we pray? Psalm 129, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Well, let's just pray for a moment before we go any further. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for the way the Scriptures, the written Word of God, speak to the whole of life and our experience, to every experience we could have under the sun, including the hardships that we find in following you. A servant is not above his master, and you told us that. You made it very clear. Um, we need to be reminded of that, and we need to be taught here this morning from your very word how to respond, how to pray. What does it mean? Pray these things in your name. Amen. Radical actions tend to get our attention, Right? Radical actions, things that stand out by definition, tend to get our attention. Let me tell you of one that took place on June 29th, 1996. Kashia Thomas was 18 years old when the KKK held a rally in her hometown of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hundreds of protesters turned out to tell this white supremacist organization that they were not welcome in this progressive college town. At one point during the event, a man with an SS tattoo and wearing a T-shirt emblazoned with the Confederate flag ended up on the protesters' side of the fence, and a small group began to chase him. He was quickly knocked to the ground, kicked, and hit with placard sticks, and the people began to shout, kill the Nazi. And a high school student who was present there fearing that the mentality of the mob had taken over, decided to act. Kesia Thomas, 18 years old, threw herself on top of that man. She, by the way, is African-American. She throws herself on top of this man that she'd come to protest, protecting him from the blows, telling the crowd, you can't beat goodness into a person. Later, discussing her motivation for this courageous act after this event, she stated someone had to step out of the pack and say, this isn't right. I know what it's like to be hurt, and many times that that happened, I wish someone would have stood up for me 
Mark Bruner, a student photographer who took a now-famous photograph of Kashia's brave stance, added that what was so remarkable to him about uh, what took place was who Thomas saved. Quote, she put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would have not done the same for her. Who does that in this world? Radical actions tend to get our attention, right? And it certainly got the world's attention in 1996. And that was before things could go viral, but in their own way in 1996, it did. It did. Uh, there was something, something there that just resonated with those who heard that news story and saw those photographs. Why? What is it that's resonating? Even as I, say, if I read this and recount it to you, what is it that's resonating? Why? Well, it has something to do with the fact we know this. This is what the world needs. People taking stances like that on behalf of, of others. We know that. It's what the world needs. We also know we're made for that, to do this. There's a sense of rightness, rightness about it. But, but it's, we need to go further and to recognize there's an echo here. What that girl did that day was an echo of Jesus' command to His followers to love your enemies. To love your enemies. And that is a radical response to affliction, to oppression, to persecution, to hate. That is a radical response. It's so counterintuitive. I'd like to believe I would have done that that day. I'd like to believe that. Um, radical, it's such a, it was such a radical response to oppression. Where would such a thing begin? What might be the roots of such a response, of, of, of loving our enemies? What, now, just take yourself away from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and you know, whatever you're thinking about in terms of your enemies and people who hurt you in your past or in your present or you know, positioning yourself for the future. What would, it, what would it mean, what would it take for us to do that? Where, what are the roots of that? Where would it begin? Well, Psalm 129 shows us it begins with prayer. Its roots are in prayer. The Lord calls us to a radical response when oppressed. That response begins with prayer. What kind of prayer? We see three things here. We're going to look at this. If you've got an out, the outline, there's the, the three points. First, it begins with a, a prayer that recognizes there's a, a corporate understanding. We'll unpack these as we go. A corporate understanding, an honest reflection, and a kingdom orientation. Okay? A corporate understanding, an honest reflection, and a kingdom orientation. So first, a corporate understanding. That is to say, how we, or excuse me, who we, who we understand ourselves to be, um, in relation to our fellow disciples, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who we understand ourselves to be in relation to them. And the psalm shows us we need to have a bigger view. We need to have a, 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 an understanding that goes beyond just ourselves. You see the counterintuitiveness already? An understanding of ourselves that goes beyond ourselves. Now, yes, there, the Scriptures are clear. There is a significance to the individual. There is a significance to the individual. That is real. 
We know that just with our own personal testimonies is how we came to Christ, the way the, the Holy Spirit worked in our hearts in different, unique ways. Every one of us here in this room has a unique story tailored to who you are. There's a significance to the individual right there. You read the gospel accounts, Jesus' conversations with whether it's the social outcast or the social um, hierarchy. It doesn't matter. It, it's, but He speaks different ways to different people, all tailored to, to their need. And the Psalms, the particular Psalms that we see here, whether it's an individual crying out to the Lord and how they're distinct, each, each one of them from another. Yes, the Bible does speak of the significance of the individual, but always with an understanding that the individual is part of a community. Always with an understanding that the individual is part of a community, and you see that just in verses 1 and 2. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, so this is the worship leader saying, hey, Israel, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. This is a shared lament. It is a shared lament spoken by the people of the people. Our understanding of ourselves has to go beyond ourselves to recognize that we are part of a larger, a whole body. We have to, to see as we understand who we are to take into account the whole, the larger body. Uh, they're, they're, they're hearkening back, the, the, the people here are hearkening back to a shared experience as, as they reckon with this affliction. What affliction are they speaking of here? From my youth, their youth as a people, their, their ability to say, this is what our forefathers have experienced from the very beginning. This is who we are. This is what they did to us. To us, a historical corporate understanding. This, this individual expression where it says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, that's un I'm going to use a big heavy word here, that's a personification. The individual expression is a personification of the corporate whole. Me really stands for us. Us here. Now, this idea of the need to see beyond ourselves, but rather to understand ourselves to be a part of a larger body is not just something that you see in the Psalms. It's not just something that you see in the Old Testament. It's carried right on over into the New. Right on over into the New. If you want to keep your thumb here in Psalm 129, let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul states this startling a fact, it makes clear the startling reality. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 26 and 27. If one member suffers, all suffer together. He's speaking of the church, the church in Corinth. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And that's why when the one suffers, they all suffer. When the one rejoices, they all rejoice. And it's, this is this idea, this dynamic is why in the book of Romans, you're going to go to Romans 12. It's why we see in Romans 12, it's, it's what fuels Paul's command here. Romans 12, verses 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Paul is, is showing us here just the very same thing that Psalm 129 is speaking of here. That in response to affliction, oppression, persecution, whatever form it may take, 
that comes upon us because we are identified with the name of Jesus, there's a, still yet a sense we need to identify ourselves with the larger corporate body or larger corporate realities here. So, let me try and illustrate this. A guy by the name of James Wetmore is an engineer and a social researcher at Arizona State University. And he has a special, his, his lane that he runs in with his research is the Amish community, especially their use of technology. I'm going to read you an excerpt from an a, uh, interview with, uh, with Wetmore. The reason the Amish rejected television is because it is a one-way conduit to bring another society into their living rooms. And they want to maintain the society as they have created it. And the automobile as well. As soon as you have a car, your ability to leave your local community becomes significantly easier. You no longer have to rely on your neighbor for eggs when you run out. You can literally take half an hour and run to the store. And a horse and buggy, when you don't have your own chickens, that's a half-day process. So Wetmore, picking up on this, says, well, I asked one Amish person why they didn't use automobiles. He simply smiled and turned to me and said, look what they did to your society. And I asked, what do you mean? Well, do you know your neighbor? Do you know the names of your neighbors? And at the time, I had to admit the fact, I didn't. Now, I'm not advocating chucking your TVs and selling all your cars. It's meant to make a larger point and to, make our, to encourage us to ask some questions. How do we see ourselves? Specifically, Christian, how do you see yourself as a single, solitary individual or the member of a larger body. Psalm 129 points us that fundamentally we need to be understanding ourselves as members, yes, but of a larger body. Reckoning with, some of you may be familiar with, is the number of one another's that Paul mentions in his letters. So many of his commands in Paul's letters that you can't possibly fulfill as a single solitary Christian. You, they only make sense in the context of body life and how often we see all through the Scriptures the reality of our interdependency, our need of one another. Or if I can just push this a little further, when it comes to uh, the context of or the, the discussion, like that Open Doors thing that I was reading in the persecution report from 2020, when you hear stories of Christians around the world or back through history, it's like Fox's Book of Martyrs or that kind of thing, when you hear stories of Christians being persecuted for their faith, how does that land on you? As just more pesky noise that you'd like to filter out or as news of your siblings being mistreated such that you can honestly say they did that to us, not them, us. You see, the Lord is calling us here to a radical response to oppression, and that begins with prayer, and part of the prayer is a radical way of praying, having a corporate understanding of who we are, which then takes us to the second point. 
Not only that, but it demands an honest reflection. And what I mean by that is not denying the pain, not pretending it's not there, not turning a blind eye to it, not, being, uh, not, not ignoring what's happened and the evil and the injustice of what has happened, but rather a determination to live in reality, which, of course, you see with the psalm. Of course, you see it with this psalm. Again, verses 1 and 2. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. There's a repetition here. Lest you miss it, there's a repetition. Why? Lest we miss the point. For emphasis. The psalmist is having us, the song leader here, is having us stare that evil in the face and call it for what it is. Not deny the pain, but name it. Name it. And how is it named here? As affliction. Wrong that has been done by another unjustly for no good reason. And Israel was well acquainted with such treatment beginning with bondage, enslavement in Egypt, and through the generations, think of the period of the judges, on all the way up through her captivity in Babylon. Israel was well acquainted with such affliction. You see it in here, in, in, and that's reflected in the naming, but also not just that, in, not just in what is sung but in how, in these horrific metaphors that the psalmist uses here. I don't know if you picked up on this, but look back at verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now, get the imagery. That's not just captivity. That's not just enslavement. That's torture. That's scourging, that's grievous wounds, scarring. The furrows on the back, like ditches dug by a farmer in a field. It's really very graphic, and it's meant to be hard to take, hard to hear. Such honest reflection when you think about it, well, that, that in prayer, that too is part of the radical response. Being that raw, being that open, being that honest and transparent. You know, counselors will tell you that there's tremendous power in naming a thing, in being able to say, it's almost like, a, like an ownership when you can label it, when you can call it something, something true. There's tremendous power in that. When you can grapple, finally, putting, uh, putting it in the right bucket, what emotions are storming within you, what experiences you've ached through, what trauma you've experienced. There's tremendous power and, and, and healing that can come when you can actually just name the thing. And until that point... Oftentimes, you just feel just so confused, so lost, and don't really know where you are and where you're going. But when you can name it, 
Well, it's something like that here in, in Psalm 129. And friends, get this. This is so amazing. God is inviting, encouraging, bringing us in to praying this way, to praying in, in, in this way, with this kind of transparency and this kind of honesty and this kind of rawness. You see it in this psalm and so many of the others. My goodness, people, we have a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. It's not a fun read, but it shows us our Lord is inviting and encouraging us and welcoming us into praying this way. Jesus, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping, weeping. Think about the message we send when we are willing, unwilling to be this honest. And what purpose does it serve to be dishonest with the pain? We as Reformed Presbyterians are rather fervent about our confession that God is God over all things, over all things, and we can trust Him with all of life, can we not pray to Him in that way? Are we not being beckoned to do so here in the Psalms? Well, let me just come at it from another angle. The pain has to be dealt with. It's not just going to dissipate, okay? It has to be dealt with. Now, if you try to uh, deal with it yourself... If you try to get on top of it yourself, by yourself, here's what inevitably happens. It will get on top of you. You think you're dealing with it, it's dealing with you. If you try and deal with it yourself and don't speak of it to the Lord. And how does it come out in time? Bitterness and resentment. Some of us today could ask ourselves a question. Why am I so bitter and angry? The roots of it may be here. Why am I so anxious and worried? The roots of it may be here. I don't know how to pray this way. And maybe I'm not willing to because I don't feel free to. But you see, in the, the gospel, it frees and impels us to pray this way, to be this honest, to be this transparent before the Lord with everything, with absolutely everything. Again, the Lord is calling us to a radical response in the face of oppression, whatever form it may take. And that begins with prayer, including a radical kind of prayer, which has to do with being honest, an honest reflection on what's going on, which then takes us to the third point. 
a kingdom orientation. And what I mean by that is this, how we absorb it, how we process it, and how, we, how it um, reverberates, can I put it that way, how it, how, 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 or the reaction, the heart's reaction that we take to it. And we see this in verses 5 through 8. Again, it's something that's just, it's not normal, it's not natural. Verses 5 through 8, "'May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward.'" Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So this radical response in prayer demands a corporate understanding, it demands an honest reflection, and it demands a kingdom orientation, which means we are never, never, never after revenge. Never after revenge. Now, that is our natural response. It's the twisted, inverted version of the golden rule. You know how that goes? Do unto others as they've done unto you. That's our natural way. That's our natural impulse. It's not what the psalm is calling for. No few of you know, I know, no few of you know, Sean Connery passed away just two weeks ago. Of course, Sean Connery, an actor best known for his role as James Bond. Do you know the Oscar that he won was as Jimmy Malone in The Untouchables? It's a rough movie, so parents, you figure that out, whether or not you want your kids to see it. But, but here's the idea. So um, Kevin Costner plays Elliot Ness. Um, Sean Connery plays a guy named Jimmy Malone. Jimmy, uh, Elliot Ness is the, the lead team of the FBI trying to bring down Al Capone in the city of Chicago back in the Prohibition era. And uh, Jimmy Malone, played by Sean Connery, is this old seasoned Chicago police officer who's trying to help this team of neophytes from the FBI figure out how to do it. And there's this pivotal scene in, in the film. I'm going to read you some of the excerpts here. Uh, so... Uh, Jimmy Malone, what are you prepared to do? If you open the can on these worms, you must be prepared to go all the way because they're not going to give up the fight until one of you is dead. Elliot Ness, I want to get Capone. I don't know how to do it. Jimmy Malone, you want to know how to get Capone? They pull a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. Now, you want to do that? Are you ready for that? I'm offering you a deal. Do you want this deal? It's a great scene. It's a great scene. It's not Psalm 129. That's the natural response. The Chicago way is the natural response. I apologize if you're from Chicago. It's not it's okay. Um, don't send me emails. I don't want to read them. The Chicago way, this context, Chicago way is not the gospel way. It's not about revenge. It's never about revenge. It's never about building my kingdom. It's about Jesus' kingdom. And, and, and some commentators, I will tell you, actually read these words in Psalm 129 this way, and that's just wrong. It's just completely wrong to, to read it with, with that kind of lens. Rather, what the psalmist is praying for is deliverance. Oh, Lord, do what, it, you, what must be done that your people may be delivered. Now, think with me what's at stake. Zion Zion is not just any city. This is Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation of Israel, the home of the temple of God, the living presence of, the, uh, of Yahweh there amidst His people. That's Zion. 
the capital city of Israel. Israel. Israel is God's covenant people to whom He has pledged Himself, His fealty, His faithfulness to them. So what does that mean? To assault Zion is ultimately to assault the Lord. Okay? That can't stand. That can't stand. And the psalmist is praying accordingly. He's praying, they, they, the people, the people are praying accordingly. What are they after? What are they longing for? That the plans of their enemies would be frustrated. There would be a futility to all of their efforts. That there would be no more fruit found in what they're trying to do than you would find in shoots, this is the imagery here, in shoots growing up out of the shallow soil on the top of a roof. It would be futile, frustrated, and fruitless that the cords of the wicked, alluded to earlier, the cords of the wicked would be cut and God's people spared. Deliverance. That's what's being prayed for here. There's a kingdom orientation to this. And it's not, again, not about the kingdom of self, the kingdom of God. This kingdom orientation, oh my goodness, is this not a radical response in the face of oppression? Is that how you, that's not how I normally pray. Take them out. This is a radically, radical reorientation, not just to pray, but how we pray, how we pray. Now, what would fuel that? What would impel that? Think with me just for a moment. Put yourself there. Okay? Put yourself there. Let's transpose what's happening here in the Psalms, the songs of ascent being sung by the Israelite pilgrims. Let's carry it on over into, say, about 33 AD. Okay? You are traveling with Jesus and his disciples on the way to festival. You, with Jesus and the disciples, are singing these songs. You are singing together Psalm 129. Whose voice do you hear singing these words? The king of the furrowed back. As you reflect upon weeks, months, years later, that experience of singing with Jesus on the way to temple, Psalm 129, who have you heard singing these words? The king of the furrowed back. He knows the oppression of affliction. He bore it. He stood in our place, was bound with the cords of the wicked, John spoke of paradox, that we might go free. By His stripes, as Isaiah says, we are healed. And He bears those scars, the furrows on His back for eternity. Why? As eternal reminders of His love for you. And for me, that we could know now in this moment, in the midst of whatever we're going through, that truly with that king, we can trust him in everything with anything.
with everything and anything, we can trust Him. Again, He is calling us to a radical response in the face of oppression. And that includes our prayers and how we pray. Let me wrap this up. I want to read to you these words from, it's on prayer, believe it or not, from Revelation 8. Revelation 8, verses 1 to 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. You know, prayer itself is a radical response to oppression, right? I mean, how do you feel? How do you feel when you encounter injustice or persecution or just ill done to you? How do you feel? Angry, right? Put out, um, resentful, bitter, out of control, scared just a little bit, you know? What do you want to do? You want to respond. You want to strike back. You want to rally the troops. There may be a time for that. Okay? Don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. There may be a time for me. The God of justice is never served by allowing injustice to flourish. There could be a time. There could be a time to respond, but not. Not. Not until we've prayed. We're not ready to make the first step until we've prayed. Not just because of prayer's impact and effect and transformative effect upon our own hearts. Oh, there's that. But also simply because of this. This is why I read from Revelation 8. Because we're putting feet to our faith when we pray. When we are going in dialogue and conversation with the God who is there, the God who is at work, the God who is on the move in this world now, the God who hears prayer and at times will respond by pouring out peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. Prayer. The Lord calls us to a radically different response in the face of injustice, oppression, persecution, and all of that. A radically different response, and it begins with prayer. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Lord Jesus, would you make us into a praying people, ever aware of your living, real presence with us, your favor towards us, your ear turned to us, that we would have assurance, such assurance that our increasingly our instinct, our impulse would be to pray. 
prayers shaped by the gospel, shaped by your finished work on our behalf, such that we would have this, as the psalm points us towards, this corporate understanding and with an honest reflection, with a kingdom orientation. Oh, Lord Jesus, deep change is needed. Yes, in our culture. Yes, in our society. We are so fractured. But it has to begin with the church. So, Jesus, would you bring revival? And Jesus, would you please make us a praying people? And we pray in your name. Amen.